Matthew chapter 4. Our sermon text from this morning comes from Matthew's gospel. Again, Matthew chapter 4. It's also printed for you in the bulletin, and I believe it's on the screen behind me. But we will be looking again in the fourth chapter of Matthew, and we will be looking this morning at verses 12 through 22. Again, Matthew 4, verses 12 through 22. Hear the word of the Lord. Now when he, that is Jesus, heard that John had been arrested, that is John the Baptist, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, Jesus went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Verse 18, while walking by the Sea of Galilee, Jesus saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him, and going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them also. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God, it stands forever. Amen. I've now mentioned several times these last few weeks that the gospels as we have them in the New Testament are not traditional biographies. They don't follow always traditional uh, timetables or traditional chronology, but rather they are for individual and personal accounts or for individual and personal portraits of the person, of the phenomenon that was the arrival and the ministry of Christ Jesus. And so they highlight different things and they present this portrait from their various and and differing uh, vantage points. And you can see this in the transition from last week's passage, which we looked at, which was the temptation of Jesus, to today's passage. For in reality, though they are just, you know, a few inches or centimeters apart in the page of your Bible, just a few verses apart in the timetable of Christ's ministry, in reality, there was about a year that separates these accounts. And we know that because if you, if you look in uh, verse 12, it says, when John had been arrested, Jesus withdrew into Galilee. Now, Matthew doesn't give us this full account here, but he does actually later in his gospel. If you were to go and read, when you get home today, Matthew 11 and Matthew 14, we see more about the arrest and eventual demise of John the Baptist. He describes it in more detail there. 
If you, if you recall, John the Baptist was arrested for his bold rebuke of Herod. His bold rebuke of Herod Antipas. This was the son of Herod the Great. This was a son, rather, um, of Herod the Great, the Herod that we meet at the birth of Christ. Herod Antipas had been unfaithful to his wife, and he had, if you remember, married the wife of Philip, who is his half-brother, and Philip's wife was his niece. So again, you know, when you go home today, if you want to really uh, get scandalized or maybe even a little bit nauseous, try to Google and, you know, develop a, a family tree of the Herods, okay? That's always a fun uh, exercise to try to trace all the intermarriages and the multiple names of Herod and all that kind of stuff. It'll make you a little bit nauseous, like I said, and it'll also put things like days of our lives and, you know, these modern-day soap operas uh, to shame because that's sort of how we have it in, in the New Testament. But again, John the Baptist, what happens is that he takes issue with this kind of flagrant violation of God's law. Because remember, Herod is the ruler over Judea. He is the ruler over uh, the land of Israel. And so in a sense, you would want him to also be respectful of the law of God, of the law of the people in which he governs. And so John is, is um, very frustrated. He is very uh, mad at this flagrant violation of the law of God. And so he calls Herod out on it. But of course, in calling Herod out on this, he gets arrested and he gets into his own trouble. But it's on the heels of this arrest that the text tells us that Jesus then travels back to his home region of Galilee. He travels back. He had, as we know from other places, been down in Judea, again, through his first year of public ministry, and he begins now to make his way back steadily north. And so he makes his way through places like Samaria first, which is where he encounters the woman of Samaria. And you can read about those encounters and those important texts uh, in places like John uh, chapters 1 through 4. So, for instance, in, the, in that first year, uh, Jesus calls his first disciples. This is, again, John 1 through 4. He turns water to wine. He spends a first visit in Capernaum. He comes to Jerusalem for Passover. He cleanses the temple. He meets the woman at the well, and then he talks to Nicodemus. So these all, you know, very, very important um, accounts. Well, Matthew doesn't include them here, but he includes some of those elsewhere because as we're beginning to see... These are differing vantage points of the phenomenon who was, who is, Christ Jesus. So a good way to think about it is if there was a, a traffic incident and we were standing at the four corners of that intersection, we see things differently. We remember things differently. We highlight things differently. Well, this is what's happening in the Gospels as well. And Matthew particularly, as we begin to see, is very, very concerned with a primary function of Jesus, which is how does he fulfill prophecy? How does he fulfill Old Testament scriptures and allusions and prophecy? And we began to see this in the very, very first chapters. We saw it even when Jesus was in the wilderness last week and being tempted. Matthew connects him to previous categories, to previous stories. Uh, to previous institutions even in the Old Testament. Think of Israel and their wilderness time. Think of Adam and his temptation with the evil one. 
Matthew connects Christ's baptism to various Old Testament passages. As we know, he connects many things in the birth of Jesus to Old Testament passages. But here, in this text, as he begins sort of a, a, a new chapter in public ministry, if you notice, Matthew connects him to Isaiah 9. To Isaiah 9. So your, your Bible, if you have a, a study Bible or if you have a Bible with footnotes, probably mark that those verses 15 and 16 are Matthew quoting from Isaiah 9. Particularly when Isaiah speaks of light dawning on a dark land. On light dawning on a land of darkness. Well, as we know, the land that he is speaking about and the land that Jesus is now journeying uh, very proactively towards is the land of Galilee. The land of Galilee, his home region and where he will do many, many works. But Matthew sets out for us to see, and this is, I think, an important principle for us all to remember as we not only read our Bibles, but also as we live our earthly lives. Matthew points out by doing this that the human event that seems to propel Jesus or the human circumstances that seem to set this uh, retreat, if you will, by Jesus in motion, was the arrest of John. It was what appeared to be uh, a loss. It was what appeared to be a tragedy, an unforeseen bump in the road. That was the human side of it. Those were the human events that prompted it. But the divine hand of providence that stood behind it, the divine hand of providence that allowed it to happen, was prophecy, was God's ultimate will, as it was expressed in places in shadow form like Isaiah. But it was his will that was happening before the beginning of time. Christ now is fulfilling all of these things. He is fulfilling even the words of ancient prophecy. And when we see it that way, it, what, what it does is it helps us um, properly, if you will, interpret that word in verse 12 of withdraw. Withdraw. It says, again, verse 12, when he, Jesus, heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. When we see it this way as the fulfillment of prophecy, as Jesus um, getting his marching orders, if you will, from on high and not from a reactionary posture to human events, then this word, withdraw, loses the notion of defeat. It loses the notion of defeat. And again, this is important for us to see in our own lives and in even today's world, that in the face of adversity, God never withdraws. In the face of adversity or the face of in the face of tragedy, whether it's personal in your own life or whether it's on a macro scale in our world, God never withdraws. God never retreats, but rather in and through these events, God's kingdom continues to advance. Isn't that true? Haven't you seen that happen at times in your own life? Can't you look back over the brief history that is your life and see how, again, God's hand of providence continued to work even in the valleys, even in the low places, even in those times where it seems that his face was hidden? We know that to be true. 
Now, in the face of adversity, God doesn't withdraw, but his kingdom continues to advance, often in its most effective form. And so Jesus here, again, doesn't withdraw out of fear of Herod. That is very, very important for us to see. He doesn't withdraw out of fear of Herod, nor does Jesus withdraw to sort of this out-of-the-way place in order to, quote-unquote, get out of Dodge or just lay low for a while. And we know that because the land of Galilee, where he spent time previously, the land of Galilee, where he now heads to again in this passage, is also under the jurisdiction, also under the rule of Herod. If you want to kind of keep like a, a, a little map in your mind, or maybe you have one in the back of your Bible, a good way to think about this and to remember this is that you have the Dead Sea in the land of Israel. You have the Dead Sea to the south. That's where Judea is. That's where Jerusalem and, and, and Bethlehem are. And then from the Dead Sea in the south, you have the Jordan River, which sort of runs like a seam up the middle. And along the Jordan River, you have places like Samaria. So the Dead Sea, the Jordan River. And the Jordan River eventually connects to the Sea of Galilee. And that's where, again, up there you have the region of Galilee. You have cities like Nazareth and Capernaum. So all of this is under the jurisdiction of Herod. Christ isn't withdrawing out of defeat. He's not withdrawing to escape Notice he's not withdrawing because now he has to lay low for a little bit. It's actually the opposite in many ways. It's actually the opposite. That again, Galilee isn't the religious capital. It's not the place of religious activity or prestige that a city like Jerusalem is and in the foot of the temple would have been. And so when we look at it, you know, in, in quick form, we kind of gloss over it and think that, well, then Jesus, again, is, is going out of the way. And to a traditional religious thinker, it would have potentially looked that way or felt that way. But again, in the economy of God and in the movement of God, it's actually the opposite. And it's the opposite because Galilee is heavily populated. Heavily populated. And because of its proximity to the Sea of Galilee, the land around it, the land in Galilee proper, is incredibly fertile. And so when you have a heavily populated area that is very fertile, think about your history books when you were in school. What does that usually mean? What does it make that location? It makes it a trade route. It makes it a place where there's great activity. There's great numbers of people passing through. And all of these kind of things. And so that's what's happening here in Jesus' day as well. It's a prime trade route. It's a great hub of cultural and ethnic diversity. It's called, if you notice, even in the prophet Isaiah, Galilee of the Gentiles. Galilee of the Gentiles. If you go back to the time of conquest under Joshua, as we see, look in verse 15, or you can look also in verse uh, 13. This was the original tribal allotment for Zebulun and Naphtali. Well, Zebulun and Naphtali, though, were two tribes who, like many of their, of their brethren, failed to drive out all the inhabitants. And so this land remained fairly Gentile in its population. This became even more true when this part of Israel, again, the north, the northern part of Israel, the land of Galilee, was conquered by Assyria, roughly 700 years before 
Christ. That's what Isaiah is talking about in his time. That's what he's prophesying uh, in those verses. This northern part of Israel will be conquered by Assyria. And as you know, when the Assyrians come in, they not only take Hebrews as captives back to their kingdom and land, but they resettle those lands, they repopulate them with their own people or with people from other kingdoms that they have conquered. Now, there are times, and this is right before uh, the time of Jesus, that there will be these Jewish wars and revolts, and for a time they will sort of you know, turn that Gentile tide in that area. But by and large, this remains, Galilee, in the time of Jesus, a very heavily Gentile, a very uh, diverse, a very non-Jewish area. So again, can you now see how Jesus is being strategic? He's not being um, scared. He's not being uh, wimpy. He's not being, uh, again, trying to lay low. He's being strategic in where he launches in the Gospel of Matthew his public ministry. But you also begin to see then why those in Judea, why the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, those at the, the seat of power, those in and around the area of Jerusalem, often look down on their northern neighbors because, again, those are the heavily Gentile lands. Those are the lands that have intermarried. Those are thought to be the watered-down Areas, which is why Jesus encounters trouble when he goes to Samaria, why the Samaritan woman is, is an outcast. This is also why, if you remember, in certain places, uh, I'm thinking of John 7, for instance. John 7, um, Nathaniel. I'm sorry, uh, this is in John 7 when uh, Stephen, uh, Nicodemus is before the Pharisees, and he's basically wanting Christ to get a fair trial. And they say to him, search your scriptures and you'll see that no prophet arises from Galilee. You can see and hear the judgment in their voices. Well, again, this is true to an extent. Christ comes from Bethlehem. He's born in Bethlehem, but he lives in Galilee early on. And now he resides in Galilee again. But he does all of this very, very intentionally. Very, very intentionally to not only fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah, but to launch his ministry with as much reach as possible. As much reach as possible. And why would that be? Why would that be? Because we know that in Jesus, fulfilling the prophecy of Isaiah, that upon a land of darkness, light has dawned. It's not just the announcement that light has dawned in the form of a military deliverer. Or it's not that light has dawned in the form of setting the captives free from earthly powers because though that's true for a time with Israel, who are they now under the thumb of in the New Testament? Rome. He is announcing this light of deliverance from something, as we know, much, much more important, much, much more cosmic in its scope, which is the release of captivity from sin and death and darkness that only the gospel brings. That only the gospel brings. And he's announcing it to people who are not just Jewish in their heritage, but who come from all places who need that deliverance as much as the next person. And so by Jesus starting in Galilee, again, he shows this upside-down way in which God often does his best work. It's in the face of adversity. 
But now he goes into a land where he will call primarily those who are thought to be outcasted. Those who are thought to be marginalized. Those who aren't the most credentialed. Again, those who aren't at the center of the religious prestige of that time, but who found themselves on the fringes. Again, it's this land of mixed population. It's this land of great diversity. It's this land where there is a stigma in the religious leaders' minds of the day. That's where Christ goes. That's where he launches his ministry. That's where he proclaims the good news of the kingdom has arisen. And this is a common theme we see all throughout the New Testament and all throughout the Gospels. Think about even at the birth of Christ. Remember, we had the, the contrast of the Hebrew uh, shepherds and the Gentile magi, those kings from far off. The Hebrew shepherds, the Gentile magi, again, showing even at the birth of Christ, this is a kingdom for everyone. And as we see here, admission to this kingdom isn't based on resume, but it's based on what Christ begins to preach there in verse 17, repent. Repent. That's not based on heritage, but it's based on the posture of the heart, this heart of repentance, this heart where we acknowledge our need for saving and our need for cleansing. It's a kingdom for the outcast. But the question for us, I think, as we remind ourselves of these truths, is do we still believe that today? Do we actually still believe that truth today? That Christ came for the outcast, that Christ came for the marginal and the stigmatized and the one that culture and the world ultimately rejects. Do we believe that? Because we love the ring of that in our stories. We love the ring of that in the pages of Scripture. But do we really believe that even still today? Because if we did, wouldn't we be more inviting to church? Not only when those who come in, but wouldn't we spend more time inviting those who are around us all the time into church? The church, wouldn't we be less judgmental when someone comes into church who doesn't appear to check all of our boxes or doesn't appear to have it all together? Wouldn't we be more welcoming and more accepting of those who are on the fringes of society or on the margins of our world? Or another way to look at it is, do we really believe that about ourselves? Again, Jesus always seems to call the outcast, always seems to call the marginal, Paul will later say that he calls the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and he's talking about us as Christians, but we, do we really believe that about ourselves, that we are the marginal, that we are the outcast, that we are the stigmatized, or do we think that you know, God makes a few exceptions, <laughs> right? He, yeah, he loves to call the outcasts and the marginal, but every now and then he calls in a few ringers, and that's me, that's us, right? No. He's always at work building his kingdom around those whom the world rejects, those whom the world deems not having it all together. And so again, those are just questions for us to ponder as we do ministry here at Lake Osborne. What does our congregation look like? What does our outreach look like? What does our acceptance of others look like? Does it look like what we see Christ emulate in the very launching of his public ministry from the very beginning? But let's go a little bit further uh, into the text in the time we have. Look, look at verses 
18 through 22 again, that, that little section. Jesus is walking by the Sea of Galilee. He sees two brothers, Simon and Andrew. He calls them, and then again, later, 21, James, the son of Zebedee, John, his brother, mending their nets, and he calls them, and immediately it says they leave their boats and follow him. We now see here how this light of the world, this light who uh, shines upon the dark land, who fulfills the prophecy of Isaiah, he makes that light now dawn on specific people. So it's not just in theory, it's not just this general, you know, shining of a light, but now it, it interacts with specific people's lives, just like you and I. And then the ones who it interacts with here are Andrew and Peter, James and John. Again, an example of the fringes of society. He doesn't begin by launching his ministry with surrounding himself by religious scholars or religious elites, certainly not the Pharisees and the Sadducees as we know, but he begins with fishermen. He begins with ordinary blue-collar folks, if you will, not the white-collar elites, not the studied, not the, not the credentialed. And again, it's another reminder that when Jesus calls, as you've heard in that cliche phrase, but it's a helpful phrase, he doesn't call the qualified, but he qualifies those whom he calls. And we see that here right with his early preaching to the disciples, that the only qualification they need is to be known by him, to be known by him. That again, he doesn't call the qualified, but he qualifies the called. And that's a good question for us to ask for ourselves as well. What is Jesus calling us to? What is he asking us to do on his behalf? And do we respond to that call wholeheartedly? Because we do see that notion here, that it is an all-encompassing call. It's a call that asks for everything, to leave behind everything and follow him. And we see that by looking at one other place. If you take your Bible real quick, go to, uh, go to John chapter 1. I referenced this earlier. Go to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, look at verse 35. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the 10th hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus, and Jesus said to him, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Do you see what's happening here? That these are men who Jesus has encountered before. These are followers of John, originally, who... John proclaims, and this is again before his arrest, and points to him and says, this is the Lamb of God. This is the one of whom I speak. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. 
So these are potentially men associated originally with John, whom Jesus has interacted with. But now he apparently interacts with them again. And what have they done? They've gone back to fishing. They've gone back to their nets. But now with the arrest of John, again, the ante has been kind of ratcheted up a bit. And Christ says, now's the time. Now the time has come. No more playing games. No more half-heartedness. Now it's time to leave everything and follow me. Now the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent. Follow me. I will make you fishers of men. Do you see that? Do you see how God doesn't, again, call the qualified? He qualifies the called, but that call he puts upon our life is an all-encompassing call. It is a comprehensive call. It is a call for us to leave behind our nets, to drop what our hands are normally busy with, and to follow after him and the advancement of his kingdom. And so those are very, very important questions for us to ask ourselves throughout our journey, throughout our time in the church as Christians following after Jesus is first, don't ever let qualifications stand in your way. Don't ever think that you can't be used by God to do mighty things in his name. Because again, he qualifies those he calls. He doesn't need our religious prestige. He doesn't always need our credentials. He needs our willing hearts. Again, the only qualification for the disciples is to be known by Jesus, and that's the same for us. And so what is he calling you to that you are perhaps afraid you don't measure up to? What is the task he is calling you to that, again, you might be afraid you're not adequate enough for or qualified enough for? Again, he took fishermen and he changed the world. But also, the question is, what what stands in our way? I think this is a great question to ask as we enter into 2021 because 2020 was a crazy year, was it not? And so the question is, what did you run back to, perhaps, in 2020? Like these fishermen here, what were the nets you ran back to? What were the boats that you ran back to to try to preserve some sense of sanity or to try to preserve some semblance of meaning and purpose in your life? What was, what was it you ran back to that now Christ is calling you to have an open hand with and to to let go of that you might follow after him with even greater zeal and devotion. Because what happens when we do that, when we have an open hand towards things, we let go of the nets, we let go of the boats. What happens in our lives is what happens in the life of the disciples that we find ourselves swept up into something so much better than we can imagine. We find ourselves swept up into something so much brighter and bigger than we could have imagined, which is, again, the, the advancement of his kingdom. We find our lives, just like these men did, enriched and enlarged when we forsake personal gain for the riches of Christ's kingdom. And that's especially true when we consider the message of Christ. He said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That is now more true, if you want to think of it that way, with each passing day. That yes, Christ was the embodiment of that kingdom, that the kingdom of heaven had come near, it's most near in Christ, but we know the kingdom of heaven will return also in glory and in fullness and in power with the second coming of Christ, and every day that passes is one day closer to that kingdom's 
arrival. And so the same urgency should sweep over us as it had with the disciples. We must follow after Christ with everything. We must forsake our nets and our boats and follow after him with everything and be willing ambassadors and willing agents and willing mouthpieces of that message. Repent. Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is on its way. And again, as we know, we live just like Isaiah did, just like Jesus did. In our own way, we live in a land of darkness. A land of darkness. And the only hope for the land of darkness is that light which dawned in the person of Christ. But it takes us as his disciples, it takes us as his followers to preach that message and to again forsake everything to follow after him. And so my prayer is that the Holy Spirit and his wisdom would help us to answer those questions for ourselves that the Holy Spirit would guide us all and use us all as we follow after Christ in whichever way he has called us to follow. Let's pray together. O oh Lord, we do thank you for the light which has come our way in Christ. We thank you, Lord, that we can look in the pages of Scripture and be reminded that your people have always been rooted in lands of darkness, if you will, places of difficulty, places of uncertainty, but that you entered into the land of darkness, that you came to be the light. And so, Father, may we remember as we reflect on this text that that light has not been extinguished, that light continues to shine, and that we now are part of that shining out. So, Father, would you use us, we pray, as you use those disciples to ultimately proclaim the goodness of your kingdom, the goodness of repentance and new life, and Lord, may we see that message take root, all for your glory. So would you instruct us and teach us, we pray, through your Holy Spirit, just what it is you are calling each of us to this year, that we might immediately leave and follow after you, again, for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.